The thing that everybody points to when it comes to Flynn's involvement is the oath. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. But then at the end of it, he signed off with a where we go one, we go all. Where we go one, we go all. And so immediately a dog whistle to the Q community. I think that's actually just like a whistle. Yeah. This signified a turning point for the movement. Searches for Q spiked shortly after Flynn took the oath which led millions of others to wonder if there might be actual military intelligence behind Q. That's an excerpt from The Search for Q, a fascinating new documentary by two Vice News correspondents into the origins of the bizarre conspiracy cult known as QAnon. The reporters explore a Byzantine labyrinth of internet trolls and right-wing cranksters, even a former CIA spy turned arch conspiracy theorist in their quest to find who and what is behind a cult whose devotees actually believe a deep state cabal of Satan worshipers and pedophiles are secretly manipulating the levers of power in Washington. But nothing leaps out more starkly in their investigation than the curious role of Donald Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who has actively promoted the QAnon cult at the same time he was helping to whip up the mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. We'll talk to one of the vice correspondents who made the film, Marley Clements, and we'll bring you up to date on the House's extraordinary vote to strip one QAnon sympathizer, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, of her committee assignments on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Lizagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined by our colleague, John Ward, who has been covering the House debate about uh, whether to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments. John, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, guys. How's the end of the Republic going? Well, um, it's uh, it's it's been going. <laughs> And uh, steadily, it's still here and people are pushing back. Look, I, um, this uh, QAnon uh, doc on Vice is 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 pretty powerful. Uh, and, you know, it just although we kind of knew the basics, when you see people like Mike Flynn um, in the in the excerpt doing that oath, the QAnon oath, and then you learn just how intimately he was involved with QAnon. This is the former national security advisor (laughs) under President Trump, a guy who had access to all intelligence for, you know, maybe a week and a half before he got fired. But it is still just sort of, you know, it blows me away to think that uh, somebody like that could be buying into this completely nuts conspiracy theory. Yeah, well, that's what's so uh, chilling about this documentary and the QAnon story, because it shows the extent to which this crazy conspiracy theory cult has um, seeped into the the American bloodstream, and um, you know, not, you know, you couldn't have a better way of illustrating that point than on the very same day uh, that we're um, talking about this this documentary. Uh, we've got a recently um, seated member of Congress who's having her committee assignments stripped from her because she is uh, effectively a. QAnon person, yeah, certainly a QAnon, QAnon sympathizer. So, QAnon John, sympathizer. let's bring John in here because you've been following this. And, John, what do you make of this House vote to strip Green of her committee assignments? We've got, what, 11 Republicans now who have uh, voted in favor of doing so? Yeah, I mean, the number is bigger than I think a lot of people expected. There, were, there was chatter on Twitter that no Republicans would vote for it or maybe two, Adam Kinzinger and Fred Upton. So the fact that we're in double digits is fairly significant. Um, I still think it doesn't erase the fact that, um, you know, the day before this vote, you had, we don't know exactly how many because it was a a closed meeting, but you had significant number of House Republicans 
taking Liz Cheney to task for voting to impeach Trump. And what a lot of them seem to be most upset about is the clarity with which she called him out and condemned his actions. Um, Scott Perry from Pennsylvania, who's the New York Times has written about, was having tried to connect DOJ officials to President Trump, who could help him overturn the election, said she had given aid and comfort to the enemy, uh, you know, describing, I guess, Democrats as the enemy uh, a couple of weeks after people were trying to kill members of Congress and, and basically, you know, acting on that kind of rhetoric um, in a way that threatened lives and threatened democracy. So, you know, I got I got to say it, it is the it is the physical threats, the threats to do violence that I think was the was the ma- major factor here, uh, even more than her, you know, flaky QAnon beliefs. Uh, the uh, I was watching and Steny Hoyer, who I thought was kind of past his prime, uh, actually did a masterful job in wrapping up the Democratic case, showing that poster. Uh, that Marjorie Taylor Greene put out of her holding an assault rifle aimed at three Democratic members, the squad, AOC, uh, Rashida Tlaib, and uh, Ilan Omar, saying that she was their worst nightmare. And just he, he held up that poster and walked it around the House right to the Republicans saying, look at this. Is this the kind of person you want to be serving with and working with in this house? I mean, to some extent, uh, with the Republicans, this this I'm sure is political. They don't want the QAnon uh, placard hung around their necks, you know, and 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 they don't want to be the party of QAnon for the next election. But I think much more so, as I think Mike, you're suggesting, this is personal. I mean, it it was only. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it was only like three weeks ago that some of these people were crawling around, you know, on the floor of the House chamber, you know, hearing gunshots. Uh, if if this thing had gone on um, longer, this this attack on the Capitol, Nancy Pelosi might have actually been assassinated. You know, not to mention uh, Vice President, uh, former Vice President Pence. Uh, so then they've got a, a, a sitting member of Congress, someone who they may be sitting next to, who has advocated the assassination of, of Nancy Pelosi. So, you know, a lot of people will say that 11 Republicans voting to strip her of her committees is not a lot. Uh, but in this Republican Party, um, it, it actually is a significant number, I think. And I think it's because it's so personal. Right. And it's worth noting that the events of January 6th will be front and center next week when we have the impeachment trial in the Senate of one Donald John Trump for inciting the mob uh, uh, that day. Um, John, how do you expect this uh, to play out in the Senate? Well, I think, no surprise, the Democratic um, members of the House who are the the managers of impeachment are going to take us all back through those traumatic events and lay out very clearly the way that the president not only said things the day of to encourage people to march to the Capitol. And I believe his phrase was fight like hell. You know, I think beyond the rhetoric that he used that day, uh, none of that would have happened if it wasn't for the lies he was telling for months before that. That's really that's really what a lot of Republicans try to avoid talking about in some large part, because a lot of them took part in either condoning or ignoring or perpetuating the lie that the election was stolen. So, you know, do I think 17 Republicans are going to vote to convict? Doesn't look like it. Um, But I do think there's a big question about whether the president's defense will be in any way competent, Um, in some part, just because they've only had a week or two to get their defense ready. Um, and in one, the only one of the only documents they've released so far, they misspelled the word district at least once or twice. <laughs> I think it was United um, States. They they misspelled United or something. Right? I'm not holding out any kind of like, uh, you know, I, I'm not predicting that any Republicans going to change based on what's presented in the in the in the trial. I think their minds are probably already made up based on politics. But I think it's possible that the trial does have some impact on public opinion. 
Yeah, we will see. Uh, we had the news today that uh, uh, Jamie Raskin, the uh, lead house manager, had uh, written to the president inviting him to testify. Of course, uh, Trump's people came back and said, no, we're not going to participate in this unconstitutional process. I am wondering whether they're going to make a bid to subpoena him. They'll have the votes. All they need is 51 mm. and uh, they could do it. Whether they'll go there or not, I don't know. But it would seem to me that um, given the president's refusal to testify. I think the one person who wouldn't won't be happy about a subpoena is is Joe Biden, because I because a subpoena would would drag this out uh, right. longer than the White House would want, because I think that they, they could challenge the subpoena there, you know, and then, you know, there might be litigation. I mean, I don't think in the courts, but you start to ask a good question there, John, why would they need him? Um, and uh, and what and what would he say? I mean, I guess if you're under oath, you can be in a lot of trouble for not telling the truth. But, you know, what would he say that would add to the record? I yeah. mean, the record is the, clear. the only way it would make sense is if they had testimony from inside the White House yeah. that would show the president, in right. fact, was dismissive of what was going on, cheering what was going on, as has been reported. And right. or if he intervened. Uh, in 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 blocking the National Guard from responding. Right. I think right. that's what there's still suspicion of that. Yeah, but the problem is if you read the House uh, uh, filing, the impeachment filing, it goes through, it's all based on press reports because they weren't able to do a committee investigation right. and call witnesses to testify. They don't have the testimony that could contradict whatever Trump would say. So I'm, you know, I, I think it's interesting that they might try, but at the end of the day, I think absent other witnesses that you could confront Trump with or documents or emails or something that you could show. But Mr. President here, that's not what so-and-so said, or that's not what is in these uh, emails from others. Uh, it probably doesn't make sense. All right. Let's just ask John the cosmic question before wrapping up here, which is where is the Republican Party headed. Uh, this isn't the first time that there have been conspiracy theorists um, uh, in, in in the party. I mean, you and I don't remember this, but Isikos remembers the John Birch Society, uh, McCarthyism, of course. But this is different, obviously. Um, so so what, what does this week tell us about where things are going for the GOP? Uh, ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska, who's a Republican, he put out a video response to the state central committee in Nebraska, the Republican state central committee um, today, because they were talking about censoring him, which they've already done before. And he said, we're going to have to choose as a party between conservatism and madness um, in that video. And, you know, McCarthy yesterday, by trying to keep Green on her committees, avoiding, you know, taking the action himself, forcing Democrats to do it in essence that and then trying to basically also keep cheney uh, in her leadership post he's trying to hold this party in the house together the question is is that possible when you have people like marjorie green and uh, lauren bobert and uh, matt gates and then you have people like liz cheney and adam kinzinger um there will be further tests of this sort of thing i don't i i lack the the requisite uh, energy at the moment and the um, ability to see around corners to know exactly what those will be. But one way, one place to look is, is Senate primaries. You know, if, if some of these radical conspiracy theorists run for open seats or challenge incumbents, um, that's going to be where a big part of this fight plays out. Mitch McConnell and, uh, you know, Rick Scott, uh, who's heading the NRSC, the committee arm, who, by the way, voted to overturn the election. Scott did. I have no doubt that Rick Scott, despite that, is going to follow Mitch McConnell's marching orders and, and fight all of those insurgents to, to try to defeat them. All right, John, we will give you a few days to muster up the energy and be back to you next week on the uh, impeachment trial. And uh, right now, we've got one of the vice correspondents, Marley Clements, to talk about QAnon. So let's get to it.
we've now got with us uh, one of the two uh, correspondents in the Bafo Vice documentary, The Search for Q, Marley Clements. Marley, welcome back to Skullduggery. Man, it's so good to be here. Really excited to be back. Thanks. Um, we are excited to have you. So I want to start out. The, the title of your three-part series for Vice uh, is the search for Q. And it seems to me that works on two levels. One is the search for who is Q, the supposed intelligence insider who is uh, battling this cabal of Satanists and pedophiles. Uh, but also on a broader level, the search for who are the people who believe in Q? What is this bizarre conspiracy cult that is getting so much attention? So, Talk to us about that, the, the two levels upon which you were uh, conducting this investigation. Yeah, sure. So uh, for us, uh, we it's a three-part series. And so the first episode, we sought to sort of address what is QAnon, the sort of broader question of that. So we met a lot of the followers and uh, sort of just got a look into the day-to-day -day of being a QAnon follower, uh, as well as somebody who tracks this movement, um, researchers and journalists and things on the other side. Uh, so on that level, that was sort of a search for that. And then in episode two, we really get into finding, looking into who is behind this, this veil, right? And who Q is, who might be posting. And it seems that it's changed hands a couple of times, but one of the things we wanted to do as, as filmmakers on this really was show a just a glimpse into what it is to to have to investigate something like this. Right. It wasn't as much the investigation itself as to enter this weird world and to be able to portray that to people of like why this is so difficult to investigate, that you have to go down these weird rabbit holes and you've got to go meet with you know strange Internet trolls and uh, angry, disgruntled federal employees. And uh, it's, it's a really dark world to enter. So we really wanted to sort of portray that as well. Uh, Marley, let me ask you uh, to, to, to get to the sort of second level that Mike was talking about, who these people are, why they're attracted uh, to this conspiracy theory slash cult. Um, I'm interested in in sort of, sort of what their sort of personality traits are um, or th that they would have and that they have in common. And it seems to me there's some element of, you know, a sense of, of, of powerlessness, uh, you know, in the midst of this world with, you know, all these institutions that they don't trust and, and kind of paranoia, but then also a kind of an element of narcissism that, you know, we, you know, we've got the secret here and, and, and you don't. So, I'm curious. I mean, that may that may be tr true of a lot of people who go down conspiracy theory rabbit holes. What are the elements of of, of, of those people who are attracted to Q, and and to what extent are, they, are is it different from other conspiracy theories? Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of a big tent conspiracy theory. Uh, Q is it has become at least there's sort of a space for everybody. If you're a 9/11 truther or uh, or just a QAnon traditionalist and just believe the cabal is eating babies, you know, that there's room for you there. But uh, there's a lot of different conspiracy theories sort of encompassed in this one. Uh, it's sort of the super conspiracy theory. And so I think that you see all sorts of traditional conspiracy theorists in there. But one of the things I think that hasn't been covered uh, well as this, as this developed over the last couple of years is that it was really depicted as a right-wing pro-Trump movement. And a lot of these, uh, a lot of the followers we found, it's pretty much just as common. If I met a, a Q conference with Q followers, uh, you'll find as many Bernie supporters as Trump supporters. So there is sort of this anti-establishment uh, desire for, um, I think, a lot of the populist rhetoric we heard from Trump and and Bernie, uh, and and the idea of like bringing outsiders in, and so they sort of feel this uh, this idea that they are now going to be represented in a way they haven't been by their government in a long time. As at the same time, um, it's it is interesting. You bring that up that sort of the dichotomy of we are the outsider, and yet have been you know brought into this world where we can consider ourselves insiders. And I think everybody kind of wants that a little bit, you know. Uh, so that that is an appeal to them for sure. But Marley, look, you can be anti-establishment. You can distrust uh, government institutions. Um, I dare say uh, we have uh, ourselves uh, at many points in time. But it's quite another 
to talk about Satanists and pedophiles manipulating the levers of government. And so I just like, how do we get from, you know, the Bernie supporters or the Trump supporters who might, you know, be distrustful of government institutions, you know, against the establishment to this totally bizarre world of just crazy, kooky stuff. And and remember, just to add one quick thing to what Mike said, we're not talking about really small numbers of people. We're talking about potentially millions and millions of people who've gone down this dark road. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a really good point because speaking to uh, QAnon supporters over the last year uh, has been really interesting for me because they'll they'll start to tell me why they believe in it. And the first, you know, eight things they list, we agree 100 percent on. Right. We need to get money out of politics. There's too much corruption in the government. Right. All these things. Maybe we should consider term limits, things that that I think are really about good governance. Right. Like things that I'm like, "Uh uh uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, and then there's just this weird point where we just take these very separate turns and it's like, yep. And I guess that's because they're uh, eating kids the whole time. It wasn't it wasn't because they were just trying to enrich themselves. It's because they are into pedophilia. I'm like, I don't know where that happened. Like, where did we land? We've landed in very different places here and we came from the same place. Uh, And so that was a really interesting thing to sort of look into more. And I think what I've decided it is for me is that it's the weaponization of this this feeling of disenfranchisement, right? Uh, I think that there were a lot of military intelligence officials and uh, former officials behind this operation, uh, which we get into pretty seriously in the show. And, uh, and I think they knew how to really dig into the sort of psyche of this disenfranchised American electorate and and radicalize them. Uh, and it was sort of a slow walk, like first, you know, a couple things at a time, um, but, you know, eventually did bring them into a very different place than I think most of us do land on those issues. Well, you, you're raising a, a really interesting uh, point and one that I kept thinking about uh, during the documentary which is um, the people who uh, are the sort of organizers um, of this of this cult um, versus the followers, and and you know there are these uh, different groups. They're the anons. That's kind of like the masses. They're the bakers who are kind of the content creators, and then I guess they're the the, the leaders. But um, the the people who are, uh, yeah, I think you said manipulating. Uh, these people, are they, do you think these are people who, is it totally cynical and they don't believe this stuff? And so they're, they're seeing an opportunity to manipulate, manipulate large numbers of people for their own goods. And it's essentially a, a grift or because they're on a power trip or are these people, people who buy into the conspiracy theories themselves. Did you get any sense of that? I think that it sort of evolved over time. I think that different people got involved at different times um, and and for different reasons. So I can't say that all of the leaders have one sort of pure uh, motivation here, but I will say, you know, I think that there's a little bit of everything. I don't, I personally do not believe that, you know, the, the leaders that are former intelligence truly believe that, uh, a large majority of politicians in America are pedophiles. Like, I just don't believe that Mike Flynn. Right. Mike Flynn doesn't believe that. I don't, I can't, he knows these people, right? There's that, that's not, I just, I don't believe that he thinks that. I don't know. Uh, But I think that from an ideological standpoint for a guy like Mike Flynn, uh, you know, sort of left the Obama administration, obviously very angry, a lot of issues there. Uh, You know, Mike, you had your, your, famous interview with him at the RNC in 2016 uh, and this shift towards, you know, being very pro-Russia and, you know, working with RT and several other Russian outlets or Russian entities rather. Um, And I think that for me, one of the things that really stands out to me about him is that he was so angry at the U.S. government for what he believed us, us being soft on terrorism, right? To the point that it drove him to become this like absolute Islamophobe, in my opinion. Uh, And then, you know, you go, you're looking for somewhere where those ideas can be nurtured. And like, the Kremlin's a great place for that, right? Uh, And so, you know, in the same way that the disenfranchised voter was manipulated by QAnon, I think in a lot of ways, that happened to him, right? And he was able to see like, oh, well, if I partnered with these other countries, if I was working with them, they would do something about radical Islam, right? They would do something about ISIS. And, And so 
that pushed him into a place where uh, ideologically he aligned with somebody who wasn't, you know, traditional American foreign policy. He was furious that Democrats wouldn't say Islamic terrorism. I mean, he wrote a whole book about right. that with Michael Ledeen. Mm-hmm. Then Isakov <laughs> does the interview with him, which sets him on a course toward becoming Q. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's all my fault. It's actually. all your I, fault. I, I gave birth. But look, let, let, since you brought up Flynn, because I thought that was one of the more fascinating uh, parts of the um, – uh, of, of the series you did, um, because you sort of raise sort of compelling questions as to whether if if Mike Flynn is not Q himself, that he's more closely part of a presumed network of Q uh, that is driving this. So, Marley, tell us what you found out about Flynn and his role. Lynn is a really interesting character in QAnon world. He's uh, one of the first Q drops that uh, happens in early 2017 is to trust Flynn and uh, that he knows where the bodies are buried. And from that point on is a very sort of instrumental character in the Q narrative, that he is this fighter uh, of the cabal and that Mueller and the things happening, the Russia investigation are all they were set up as as part of the deep state's ploy to to ensure that they can continue with this uh, sex trafficking ring, and that Mike Flynn knew as the head of the DIA that this was happening. That he uncovered it himself, uh, and and that's why he was kicked out, and that's what he's been fighting for this entire time. That that's the Q line that Flynn knew, right? right. Yeah. Flynn knew, uh, and so. Um, he himself, you know, he had a he had a rough 2018. But uh, one of the earliest things he does once the Mueller indictments drop is form an organization called the Flynn Defense Fund, and immediately you see on all of these Baker's channels um, the pushing of Flynn Defense Fund. Most most Q websites you go to, uh, if you would like to donate, the donation will go to Q Defense Fund, to Michael Flynn Defense Fund. And and they really push it. All the conferences I've been to, there's jars out for it and all the tickets, a portion of the sales go to it. I have not been able to establish how much money has been made from that or in that, to that entity, but it seems like quite a bit to me, um, I would imagine. I mean, it's certainly, it's everywhere. Uh, and so, you know, you see them really supporting him uh, there. And then Flynn does a lot of other things sort of over the next couple of years that allow the Q crowd to really, they, that they see as validation of what, of who they believe he is in, in this world. And so um, one of the things is his digital soldier speech, which he gave at the Young America's Foundation is uh, that social media is going to, you know, that's the new insurgency is, and that's how, where the battles will be fought. And so QAnon believers consider themselves to be digital soldiers. Uh, They've taken that line from him and they consider themselves to be soldiers in his army. Uh, And so in 2020, in July, uh, Flynn gathered his family around a fireplace and on the 4th of July and had them do the oath to the Constitution. Uh, And when they finished that oath, uh, which any civil servant would take, um, they say, where we go one, we go all, which is the QAnon tagline. Well, where does that come from, by the way? Where where we go one, we go all. There's a couple different theories on that. I mean, people have different things. They, the idea is that it was maybe written on the bow of one of JFK's boats. Uh, JFK, JFK Jr., correct? Or uh, JFK? That's, actually, that's, actually, that's JFK proper. Okay, uh, because yeah. JFK Jr. is part of the whole Q narrative He's as well. Part of their lore as well, yes, absolutely. Uh, that Where we go one, we go all. Not not really sure where that comes from, but it is certainly that they're one of their top taglines. And they uh, he says it, and he you see this massive spike in QAnon content in, in following in followers. Um, and you see millions of people around the globe start to take the oath themselves and they're encouraged to do so. So they do a video where they take the oath to the constitution they put their hand up and then they say, where we go when we go all. What, what we may have also seen, we, we didn't, I guess we don't know it, but there may have also been a huge spike in fundraising for his, Legal Defense Fund when he said that. And that may be why he said that, right? So so we just don't know his motivations here, right? 
Precisely. It could be a lot of things. He's certainly benefiting, though. Uh, you had a uh, intriguing piece of um, uh, intel you picked up there about uh, a uh, company that Flynn formed after he left the DIA. Yeah. So one of the uh, companies that Flynn joined while he was um, out of the government was a company called OSY Technologies. It's also uh, NSO. It's um, really very, uh, very sort of ominous cyber Israeli company that has been a part of this Pegasus thing. It, uh, right. It, it, it developed the Pegasus software that was then bought by the Saudis to, uh, uh, to spy on Saudi dissidents. And one of them was a close associate of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and also the UAE, uh, Mexico, Mexican government has used it against journalists. I mean, this is a truly sinister development. Uh, the, the, the expansion, the growth and expansion of spyware by governments to snoop on the activities of political opponents. Yeah, no, it's a terrifying company. And, and uh, journalists. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And so uh, when I went through all of his filings from 2016 when he was out of the government and and one of them that he had to put in his amended filings was that he joined the board of OSY in June 2016. And so within two weeks, this had not had an American presence at all, uh, but uh, all of a sudden there's sort of these new entities attached to it. And so I was trying to find American formation paperwork, uh, LLC paperwork or something. And the only thing you can find is this trademark for this, just a queue. It's for for just a picture of a Q, um, and and it's for Q intelligence, but I can't find any of the formation information on that. It is just the letter Q uh, and the design for that, um, and so that becomes Q intelligence. And so, what do you take from that? I don't know, honestly. I mean, really, that is that's sort of a that's one of the ones that you know. There's a lot of things in there about Flynn that we did not uh, that didn't make final cut, but but that one was certainly curious and. And maybe, you know, maybe I think the thing with Flynn is that he's most certainly involved in Q. We all know this at this point. He's not shy about it. But the thing that is left to determine still is how early he got involved in it. So that was one of the earlier things that we were like, well, wait, was this all part of that? Right. Um, or does he into was he into Q's before this? Right. Is there anything there? Uh, and I don't know if there is, but it was certainly uh, an odd thing to stumble upon. Since we're on Flynn, let's play these clips now, because if you want a, an example of the reach of Q and and Flynn, um, uh, we, I came across this interview that Patrick Byrne, the Overstock guy, who was a big part of the uh, sort of bucking up Trump and the idea that he could overturn the election, uh, an interview that he gave to a active Q promoter named Tracy Baines uh, describing the meeting he had in late December in the White House with the president, Mike Flynn, and Sidney Powell, and a bunch of White House lawyers who he was fighting with. Uh, and I think it's really interesting to play because it just shows the through line from Q to the mentality that ran up to the events of January 6th and ultimately the reach of Q right into the Oval Office. Um, can we play uh, these clips? I think Biden is going to break our sovereignty. I think I know what his plan is. It involves the UN and Americans should arm. If Biden comes in, you should arm. And the day that he does anything like invites the UN in you is the day we start revolution. That was Byrne talking about the day Biden comes in, we should arm. Uh, and this is a guy who's advising the president of the United States. And here's another clip from the interview where he talks about Flynn and Sidney Powell. You were I say hope he fucking fires them all. Pardon me. Well, that was my Sidney next Powell question. Said you should we all said him right in front of them. We said you should fire these guys right now. Make Sidney in charge. But Flynn, I said, put Flynn, Flynn's your general. Make Flynn. He's the people's general. Make him your your guy, your field marshal to run this. And you will be in on January 20th. You will be in and have Sidney Powell be your White House general counsel. And you will win this battle. If you stick with these people you have on this side of me, you're not going to win this. 
Marley? Yeah, no, that, that meeting was certainly, uh, it was terrifying for me. I mean, this was before January 6th, right? And uh, so- December 21st. And when, and when Byrne is saying he should fire them all, he's talking about the White House lawyers, Pat Cipollone and, and everybody else who were still sane inside the White House telling him, Mr. President, you really can't appoint Sidney Powell as special counsel and make Mike Flynn your general in charge to overturn the election. No, but that is something that QAnon has really pushed for a long time. And we interviewed uh, Robert David Steele, who's a former CIA officer um, in the 90s, who's a big QAnon promoter now. And uh, that was in October. And he told me that the the thing I could expect was that Sidney Powell would be the new, uh, she would take Barr's position at DOJ and that Flynn would be running intelligence. And, uh, you know, then we see this happening as the election comes to a close. That, that is what they, that, what the plan was. And I think that January 6th, the insurrection was sort of the first step in that plan. They thought that they, if they couldn't do it legally, they would be able to actually take the Capitol, I suppose, is what they thought. And, um, and so that was all part of that for sure. Let me, let me ask you, Marley, uh, because in the documentary, you say that as as you're reporting, um, it becomes increasingly clear that Q is a psyop, a, a psychological operation promoted uh, by White House uh, insiders and former members of the intelligence community. What exactly do you mean by a a, 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 a psyop in this context, and what what's the scope of it, and what's the end game? You know, I think. Uh Endgame was probably actually taking control in, in the way that um, Patrick Byrne just, we heard Patrick Byrne just say, right? They really wanted to have these, this group of really radical, really radical people uh, running the U.S. government and, and that that would change everything. But the, the PSYOP is a psychological operation, uh, which is was really Flynn's sort of area of expertise in, in intelligence and defense and uh so the idea of influencing a population through, you know, their emotions and uh, so this would be like meme warfare would be an example of that, of sort of the soft, the soft power aspects of, of getting people to, to be on your side regardless. And we've been doing this all over the world forever, right? The U.S. government's done this everywhere. Um, and we've done it to, to radicalize and to de-radicalize. You know, we see we doing this constantly uh, with the young men who would like to join ISIS and targeting them now. Uh, what, what, would an example of that in the Q context be some of their hashtags like, was it save the children or? Yeah, uh, that is part of it, certainly. I mean, that, I see that as sort of a portal into Q world. Um, I would say in the PSYOP for Q is the way that these posts are done, these Q drops is these sort of, people say these cryptic posts, but it's these Socratic I guess, dialogue put forth where the board will just ask questions of the followers uh, and it'll say, you know, what do you know about um, adrenochrome and HRC and LL? And it seems very cryptic and people are like, what's HRC, right? Well, it's pretty clearly Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, LL can be Loretta Lynch, what, right? They, they'll put these things together. And, and you should probably explain adrenochrome for uh, Adrenochrome for is a drug that is, uh, it's really interesting, actually. It's a, it's a drug that is used for blood clots in some countries, but it is, there was a mix-up in the 60s where people confused DMT and adrenochrome and assigned, sort of prescribed these uh psychedelic properties of DMT to adrenochrome. And then in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Hunter S. Thompson uh, gets adrenochrome from a pedophile. And he says the only place you can get proper adrenochrome is from a pedophile. And it's this sort of just sort of throwaway line. Uh, but it was really glommed onto by this crowd where they think that that is a real thing. And it, it's not- Wait, wait a second. So adre- the whole adrenochrome thing comes from Hunter Thompson? <laughs> It does it not. Yeah, no, it, it does. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it certainly it was a I mean, thing before, but that that mix up makes its way into that that book. And that's what happens. Yes. Wow. All right. I, I had never heard that before. Uh, and, um, you know, it, I've got to rethink um, my whole understanding of Hunter Thompson for, uh, <laughs> uh, with that. Um, but look, uh, we are uh, you, know, you went to talk to a lot of really um 
bizarre folks uh, in the course of doing this. And we are speaking on Thursday, the day the House is voting to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia, of her committee assignment because of her QAnon beliefs. You actually went to uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene rally. You encountered her there. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, certainly. So that was actually the first thing that we did on this show was we just, we got the green light from Vice and we headed that night to Georgia. Uh, they, her runoff election was going to be happening in the next couple of days. And it was a really interesting election for me to look at because she was running against this sort of establishment Republican, but very, very conservative right wing guy had the Trump Rambo flag in his office. Right. Guns, God and Trump was his slogan. Uh, so very, very conservative guy and also a real stand up member of the community. Like he is a doctor in the community. He taught, taught, coached everyone's soccer teams. He was active in the church, all of the things. And Marjorie was an outsider. She wasn't actually from that district. And so she came in and she was pushing these wild conspiracy theories. And I was it seemed to me that this was really interesting about what the future of the Republican Party would look like. Which way would this go? It was a really tight race. So we went down there and talked to uh, constituents and voters for several days uh, about what they were interested in. And I uh, got, to, got to meet both candidates, uh, Dr. Cowan and Marjorie. Uh, Marjorie drives a straight Humvee that's uh, got all kinds of guns attached to it. I don't know enough about guns to say what the, those are, but uh, they... She's pretty threatening, honestly. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of campaigns in my day. I've never seen anyone pull up and like... An arsenal. Yeah, I mean, that's what it looks like, right? Um, and so they, you know, she, we met her in a parking lot and she were trying to be nice and just said we wanted to talk to her for a few minutes. She gave us a few sound bites, but nothing, uh, nothing great. And then I just was really on her campaign manager to tell us where the victory party was. I wanted to go see her speech. Um, and that night I knew she would win and I wanted to see it. And so, you know, they were very nice at first and said, sure, of course, we'll give you a call, whatever. Didn't call me back. And so we drove around the district looking for it for about an hour after she won and decided to run back to our hotel and just change real quick and go back out. And when we got to our hotel, as it turns out, the party was in our lobby. Uh, and so we, we were like, well, I guess we found it, you know? And so, fortuitous. Yeah, yeah. So we went in and we were like, well, this is our hotel. This is our lobby. We can do whatever we want in here. Right. Uh, and so she disagreed with that. She did not think it was going to be, it was okay for us to be at that, at that event. Uh, so we kind of just sat on the side, uh, and just watched it all night. Um, and she was, it was, it was wild. I mean, she was in there. I was in the room when she was giving her speech saying that, uh, Nancy Pelosi was an evil bitch and she's going to kick her out of Congress. Um, which is very interesting to think back on today as we, as this vote's happening on the floor of the house. Uh, but with Marjorie that night, one of the things that really stood out to me was, um, the hatred towards the press. I mean, immediately we didn't even have cameras. We just had masks. That's really the only thing that distinguished us as press probably at that point. Uh, and, and we'd introduced ourselves as a documentary crew earlier that day, but so, I mean, kicked us out immediately, started tweeting about us, calling us the enemy of the people, Antifa. We were so polite. We were so lovely to them, really, <laughs> like over the top uh, at first. And, um, and then as this, as we watch this unfold, you start to see staffers of hers, their phones just ringing. And it's like everyone from in the Trump White House. And they're like, we've got Trump on the phone. And, uh, you know, he did say that uh, he he tweeted a congratulatory statement to her and and said something the next day. But uh, I know that he called her that night. I watched them stand in the hallway and have this conversation. And and she was just very excited. And there was there was certainly a lot of support there. So it was a really interesting election. And I think we're going to see the repercussions of that of that night for a long time to come. Now, um, in, in the meantime, you know, Joe Biden, um, you know, he had his inauguration. He 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 is the president of the United States. And uh, there were a lot of of the Q true believers who, you know, just didn't believe that ever was gonna was was ever gonna happen, and it did. And there were stories about Q being, you know, Q followers being in disarray and being distraught, and even some people confronting reality. Um, what is your sense of of uh, what impact um, Joe Biden's election has had on the movement and will have on it going forward. Is this a blow to Q or does reality just not matter? 
I think in some ways it's a blow to Q. I think uh, it's interesting because it's almost two different things that insurrection and the election, right? I think that they've, they've had two different impacts on Q. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, Trump telling people to pack up and go home peacefully in the insurrection uh, was the thing that broke the faith of a lot of Q followers. They thought that really he was going to lead them he was going to be their general and uh, that this was that they were doing this for him. Uh, and to be called off like that, I think, is what fractured Q more than anything. Uh, but, you know, that accompanied with the peaceful transition of power to President Biden. Uh, I think certainly Q is in a place right now where Q hasn't actually made a statement or drop in several months since December, honestly. And uh, between that and what's going on in our government now, it's this really fractured space for Q. They don't know um, sort of who the leader is and they're figuring out how how to move forward. And I think that we see this split at this point where some of the people are, you know, thinking like, okay, well that, so that you, we were just making that up for the last <laughs> couple of years and we took this a little far guys. I mean, now people I know are going to go to prison. Like this isn't good. Uh, and, and so, you know, trying to, go back to normal. And the other part of them, and I worry is a larger, larger faction would be that they really, this is hard in their resolve. And they think that, uh, you know, this is part of the plan. Another one of Q taglines is trust the plan. And they think this is somehow part of it and that something will change soon. Um, there's some ideas around March 4th, Trump comes back in and I don't, there's some sort of rigmarole around all that, but, um, we'll see. You know, the, the taking it too far does remind me, I know you, you touched on this, I think, in the first episode, that there's a, a big element of game theory here, that this is, you know, in, in one sense, a giant video game. And I wonder if that was sort of a part of this or, or you know, a main driver of it. It was sort of invented as a way to sort of engage people in some play acting um, and it just got a bit out of hand. Yeah, I think it is. And we were talking earlier about what the PSYOP was, and I was talking about the Socratic method there, is that that was it. There was this game that was created where people can, felt that they could reach levels, that they could unlock this information, and that that would get them closer to Q and closer to the mission. And uh, that that gamified model is I think part of the psyop, right? It is. Uh, it's part of what really drew people in, because when you're doing this research yourself, I mean, as journalists, you guys understand that if you've actually been on the beat and you you know that story, no one can tell you that you're you're wrong on that. Like you know, you were there, and in the mind of the followers who are researching this information, and oftentimes they're just watching other people do videos about how they research it, but. Either way, they they feel very very deeply connected to it, uh, and so part of that that gamified model is is what's definitely kept people very very loyal to Q. Uh, Marley, uh, on January sixth, when the Capitol was attacked, um, you know you had lots of different factions there under the banner of the election being stolen, uh, but you had Q, and you also had Proud Boys, and you had. Uh, white supremacists and uh, the three percenters and, you know, so this whole kind of loose coalition of extremists. Do you think that is a a relationship, um, a coalition that can that will continue over time? Or do you think there are too many sort of ideological differences uh, between and among them that it's not really sustainable? No, I think it'll continue. I think there is some nuance within uh, those groups and that as we were trying to to do this film, it was, you know, people would say, well, there's this proud boy thing, you should go there. And we couldn't find much of a cue following there. Um, and and there there is differences within these groups, certainly. But I think that every person who stormed the Capitol on January 6th believed some some part of Q, right? Uh and that that was that was sort of a um, really it's a driving factor was that they felt that this government insider was asking them to do this and it was Trump um, or Flynn or whoever and and so I think that that will probably play out I think there's you know there's power struggles within everything so I'm sure that you know Proud Boys will stay Proud Boys and 
all of the different groups will stay, but I think that there definitely will be overlap uh, and we'll see this moving forward as sort of a lot of them will bind together to make a stronger party. And I think a lot of them are going to bring in, you know, far left people and into that fold and, and try and sort of create this actual horseshoe theory playing out in the real world of far left, far right meeting and creating this one great group. Uh, so just to wrap up here, you know, the title of, of, of your film is the search for Q. Um, is there really a Q? If so, who is it or who are they? What's your bottom line after having done this massive investigation? Uh, I would say that there is a network behind Q. I think that the account itself has changed hands several times and that it doesn't really, it's not even about, you know, who's writing the post because you can hire a 22 year old to do that and have an NDA and they can put some stuff together. Um, but it's about the people who are behind that decision, who who hires that 22-year-old, right? Um, and I think that though it has changed several times, uh, yeah, there is somebody now taking who's taken that energy and is uh, and putting it forth to create some sort of new political party or some new grift uh, or a new media company or something, and uh, and that they're going to harness all of the energy that they got from Q uh, to this. And that person sounds like you're describing Donald Trump. You know, I think it's I think it's more Mike Flynn than Donald Trump. I think that I I genuinely believe that you know while Trump was obviously a great benefit to him, Q was wonderful for him. Uh, in my head, I think it's it's more Flynn, and he's really. Uh, He's allowed them to connect with Trump in a way that is great for now and kept eyes off of him. But in the future, when they need a place to go, he'll be there. I take it you didn't get a chance to put those questions to General Flynn. Unfortunately, he did not reply to our interview request. You went through his lawyer, Sidney Powell, no <laughs> doubt, who would have been Linwood, a, Sydney Powell. the person to go to. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to go with Flynn plus some really clever video gamer, because um, I think the yes. video game you would, part and of it. Yes. And I agree. You would, you would definitely need a 22-year-old or younger person to yeah, pull this which off. Which would, by the way, make this like the ultimate Frankenstein monster, right? It kind of you know, is, you're right? You're creating a video game and it like, uh, you know, leads to a uh, attempted insurrection against the American government. Although, although just one well, just quick irony is that a lot, unlike a lot of other cults and conspiracy theories, uh, QAnon um, skews older, right? I mean, there, there are a lot of like QAnon grandmas, yes, which is interesting. Absolutely, no. That's a very there's a big difference here, and I think that that's that's one of the biggest problems we'll face. Is one of the counterterrorism experts we speak with on the show tells us that, you know, radicalization has been seen largely as sort of a young man's game, and that you look at ISIS, you look at any of these radicalized groups, these are all you know men primarily between the ages of 18 and 25. And with QAnon, it's a totally different thing. And how do we deal with de-radicalizing? you know, an older generation. Yeah. Or yoga moms, yoga moms and any of these. So, uh, Marley, uh, you, you did, uh, active measures, which we, uh, featured on the podcast. You've done now this what's next. <sighs> trying to figure it out. I've got quite, quite a, quite a few things. There's not lack of stories to be told as I'm sure you guys know. So, uh, I'll, I'll keep you posted, but, um, probably have something out again soon. Good. And we'll have you back on the podcast when you do. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot.